This is Life Made Better, a podcast from two coaches with a zest for not only their lives, but yours. In this series, Fleur and Lucia seek out tips, tools and exercises to inspire you to achieve your dreams and goals. Join us and let's make life better. Welcome everybody to Life Made Better. We are back from our holiday break, which was needed and lovely as expected. And I am thrilled about our amazing guest today, which is no other than Johnny Fewins. Johnny is an industry legend. He has been in the music and entertainment business for over four decades. He started off behind the counter at Virgin Records, working with Richard Branson, and he became its MD a few years later. In the late 80s, he moved on to video publishing, worked for Polygram, which was bought by Universal in the early 2000s, build a relationship, uh, building a relationship that he still has today, and where he has been involved in more than 250 film productions, including the hit films A Fantastic Fear of Everything with Simon Pegg, The Time of the Lives starring John Collins and Pauline Collins, and the big screen version of Mrs. Brown's Boys, the movie. With that track record, you can see why I'm so excited to have him with us today. Uh, Johnny and I actually met nearly 15 years ago when I worked at Universal Pictures Spain and I will never forget our conference calls and catch-ups with his relaxed tone, sharp comments, all the wisdom and all these will play in his banjo in the background. So Johnny, welcome to Life Make Better and thanks so much for being with us today. Hello, thank you for having me. So, Johnny, I'm sure our audience would love to hear a little bit more about you, your journey, and the path that ultimately brought you to where you are today. I don't know how much luck is played in it, um, but the big thing really would be is that there was never a plan. I don't know whether there was a reason for no plan, but I, I stumbled on, and I think that that ended up working for me. It may not work for everybody. Uh, I, was, I went to university, but I wasn't a good student. Um, and I'm not proud of it. Again, my wife gives me a real hard time as if I'm carrying a badge with bravado that I was a bad student. And I'm not, I'm really not. I don't, you know, I would never, I would I would hope that, you know, everybody that goes to university or college uh, studies properly, but I didn't. I was very good and still probably would be. I was very good at, at reading things in the, reading things that, you know, and then closing the book and remembering them. And so when I did my O-levels and A-levels, to be honest, physics and history were exactly the same to me. I read all this stuff, and then I closed the book, and I say it again the next day without looking at the book. And I did, the, I mean, the, the how to make, you know, sulfuric acid and the, the war, the, you know, the civil war in, in uh, France were exactly the same to me. I just learned how to do it. And so that's what I did at university as well. I had a real good time and I met loads of people and I grew a lot and I became I became a, a completely different person to the person that I was when I, you know, left Taunton in Somerset where, where I came from. People ask me whether I have a strong accent and my family always had strong Somerset accents. And I and I tend to say, and it's not really even a joke, is that you know, I got on the platform, what year was it, 1971. I got on the platform in 1971 in Taunton. And when I arrived in Canterbury, 
you know, three hours later, I had no accent anymore, no Somerset accent. And it was kind of that way. And I grew. So, so I didn't, I didn't really study well, but I did get a degree and I'm not proud of it. And I did it by regurgitating um, the stuff that you had to regurgitate. The good news is it meant I didn't get a very good degree. So there is a reward for those that do take it sensibly. And I still didn't know. So I had no plan at that point. I went busking in, in uh, Europe, made a lot of money. Um, me and a pal, we went to Munich. But tell you how successful we were is that this was 1974. And two years later, I get my job at Virgin working behind the counter. And that's two, so two years later, this is when inflation was like 10% as well. Um, but two years later, my job as a shop assistant behind the counter at Virgin, a week salary, was the same as an hour that we were earning in Munich two years earlier. Uh, wow. So we were, you know, it was, it was fantastic. So I, I, the whole of 75 bus, we went to the south of France, went, you know, slept on the beaches of Saint-Tropez and didn't make a lot of money, but we had so much money because we just made all this money in Munich. So we, uh, you know, we just had a great summer, came back to Canterbury with no plan and then kind of hit a brick wall because I had no job and no plan. And so I got a job in an apple packing factory working on a conveyor belt. Didn't last very long doing that. Got a job in a children's home as a house parent. Um, lasted a bit longer, but not, not, a, not a full year. Flipping burgers in a burger place. This was before McDonald's. So actually, I don't know whether I should defend burger places, but these were great burgers. I've got, you know, they were it's like it was called an American diner in 1975. They were very cool, and it was good. It was good food, and so I worked in two of them: one in Canterbury, and one in Whitstable. Um, and then one day I said, "I'm going to London." This so I was 23 by now, and I'm, you know, my, you know, my mum was nice about it. She never really kind of put any pressure on me, but I was clearly, you know, career-wise was was not looking like a big successful person, although I was quite happy. And uh, so I'm flipping the burgers. And actually the manager of the owner of the burger place said, um, would I be the manager? And he'd give me the flat above. And when I said no, and the last thing I wanted to do was was take on that responsibility, even though I liked the, the restaurant, the burger place. Uh, so I kind of had to leave. And so so I told everybody I was going to go to, I was living in Whitstable by now, which is just outside of Canterbury. And uh, I told everybody I was going to go to London, get a job in a record shop, find out how record shops worked, and then come back in a year's time and open a record shop in Whitstable. And so I rode my, I had a motorbike, so I rode my motorbike to London one afternoon in September, or late August 76. I, got, I knew someone that was living in a squat in Stockwell. So I, I went and lived in, the, it was an old shop, which was about to be like a corner shop, you know, like one of those like, tobacconisty corner shops. And that was my room. And the counter and everything was still there. So it was a derelict shop. But it was still a shop, but it just hadn't been traded for 20, 30 years. So they were all upstairs in what was the flat above. And I was in amongst shop fittings in a sleeping bag. And I got a job on the, telephone as a motorbike dispatch rider you know within like three days so i'd got a place to live and i got a, i'd got a job and so i was on my way to my very first pickup of the motor this is again not a great story in terms of my 
honour and, and reliability. Um, so I'm on my way to the first pickup, and I go past Virgin Marble Arch in, on the motorbike. I'm going up Edgware Road. So I remember the story that I'd told all my friends only 10 days ago in Whitstable about getting a job in a record shop. So I'd stopped and went into the record shop. And the guy behind the counter, a guy called Tim, and he years later never knew why he said this, but he normally when you, somebody comes to you in a record shop if, and asks for jobs, which you get them every day, you'll get 10 people ask you for a job. And you just say yes if you've got one, no if you haven't got one. Um, and it's so quite straightforward. But he said no, but gave me the number of head office and said, why don't you ring this number? And he still to this day doesn't know why he said that. And he thinks he never said it to anybody else. And I certainly never said it to anyone. So anyway, so I came out of there. This is before mobile phones. So I came out and, and at the bottom of Edgware Road, there are telephones. So I phoned up this woman, Pam, who was only in, in West Kensington. And she said, well, come over and see me. And uh, now, and uh, so I did. And you know, I never picked up the parcel, which I still feel bad about. Uh, so I went over to Pam <laughs> in West Kensington. Now, this is where I also do a dishonourable thing, which I'm not, I'm not actually, I'm not proud of it, but I'm not ashamed of it either, is that she, uh, she asked me uh, if I had any experience in a record shop. In Whitstable, in the, where the burger restaurant was, opposite the shop, was a guy, was a guy who had a second-hand record shop. Actually, no, it wasn't second-hand. It was a proper record shop with both second-hand and new. And he had no back rooms. He had no toilet or anything. And so in the morning, I used to open up the restaurant about 11, and he had been opening up the record shop about 9. So I used to take him a cup of coffee in the morning. The restaurant hadn't, wasn't open. I would just make the coffee, let, get all the burners going, and make some coffee for me. And I'd make one for him, and I'd wander over. And he would normally run the harbour to have a pee because he'd been bursting. But he knew I would turn up at 11. And if anybody came in the record shop, I would say, he's up at the harbour having a pee. He'll be back in a second. Um, now, on the back of that, <laughs> when Pam asks me, have I got any experience of working in a record shop? I say yes. Kind of true, Johnny. Kind of true. Yeah, so kind of true. So <laughs> I don't bother to expand too much more on it. And then she she says, well, we, we're... We're recruiting trainee managers. We've never had trainee managers. And so we're recruiting trainee managers. And would you like to be one? So um, oh, and don't forget, I have got a degree in economics. So <laughs> I did get a 2-2 in economics with my, with my thing. So I look quite good on paper. Um, and uh, so, uh, so I, became the, I became the first trainee. Well, there were two of us. But I became the first trainee manager. And I went off to Birmingham and I did stuff. I went to Sheffield and did stuff like for a week or two helping them. And then I got to Notting Hill and it was end of November, 76. And the manager behind the counter, um, the thing about working in a record shop is, particularly in those days, is, I mean, I won't give you reasons, but it was <laughs> mainly the filing system. And it, before records were, were live in a store, there would be a master bag behind the counter and a, and a floppy sleeve in the rack, which you would then marry up when they first came to the counter. And the filing system uh, wasn't straightforward. You could never bluff it. So the first day that I'm there in Notting Hill and I'm in Birmingham and Sheffield, I was helping do do like a move or something. But this is where I had to actually do the job. And uh, he said, you've never worked in a record shop in your life, have you? Um, and, he, and he called Pam 
<laughs> and Pam called me back over. I've only been there like two months now, don't forget. And Pam says, you've never worked in a record shop in your life. I go, I don't know, a fair cop. So she fired me. And, you know, one of the things that, I, you know, that I'm okay about is I've been fired, you know, three times. This was the first time. And uh, so then I said to her, though, you know, you're recruiting Christmas staff you've got you know there's, there's a notice in the window for students wanting you know, wanted for christmas part-time work so can i be one of them um and she said yeah we know we like you you're good you know we we think you're nice but you just you know you know he said so i became a christmas boy uh christmas 76 at virgin marble arch and i loved it you know it was just the, the best thing and i still look back on it as one of the best things i've ever done in my life and so and so you know, I had no friends in London and I was living in the squat in Stockwell still, you know, under the counter. And so I just, and it was open because it was Marble Arch, it was open seven days a week because of, this is before Sunday trading, but because of tourist areas and Marble Arch being a tourist area. So it was open every day. So I just went to work every day. And, you know, in the shop, you know, the idea of going to sit in my 20 year derelict uh, corner shop room with with no electricity was didn't seem that much of a good idea and yet hanging out in the shop was was paradise so i worked with really, obviously then what happened after christmas somebody leaves a shop and and by then the manager loves me he thinks i'm fantastic i just love records i'm soaking it all in so i he then gives me a job as cassette buyer and then within a year the album buyer leaves and then i become the album buyer which is so this was like the the biggest record shop outside of the big classical shop in HMV in the in the UK and now I'm buying all the music for it. And that was this was in the days before there was any computer telling you what to buy. So so everything that we bought was my was what I chose to buy. Best job I ever had without a doubt. And then um the manager left a, you know a few weeks later. So they made me the manager and I ran that for two or three years and then in seventy nine they opened the mega store, Virgin opened the mega store. And so they asked me to go and run the mega store. So I go there, did that for a year. And then, and then the, the group is growing quite big. So then when I become area manager, and so I became manager of all the shops, Birmingham and below. And then I became general manager and, and for the whole of the country. And then the MD leaves and I become MD. So I was MD five years after, right? six years after. Um, wow. Uh, going in and being the Christmas boy. So that What's was fantastic. an amazing story. Sorry, it's a bit of a long answer. Wasn't it? I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> I think it just shows when you've got passion for something, regardless, because I love the fact that you're saying there was no plan. And I think, like, you know, the fact that you fully embraced that and were like, well, let's just discover what happens, I think it's brilliant and a story that many can relate to. But I think it just shows that when you've got passion for something and you show up, then success, yeah. success comes with it. There wasn't even a plan of no plan. It was just, I was just stumbling on. But I think that if there is a lesson there, you know, in terms of your podcast, whatever you call it, the um, the lesson would be to find something that you love doing. You know, and, and it's a bit of a cliche that you'll hear when you're young and you, you probably just ignore it. But it really is important that uh, I, a lot of my friends, you know, that I was at school or college with or in those early days, you know, now I'm at retirement age, but I've got no interest in retiring. Um, and they were all, when they're 50s, they were all talking about, when are you going to retire? When are you going to retire? You know, and, and I was thinking, well, I don't really think of myself as retiring because I don't really think of myself as working. 
you know, people talk about work-life balance, you know, and I never have a, I've never thought that way. It just hasn't come to me. And I think it may be because of something to do with me, but it may also be because of the where I found myself working. You know, I sometimes say in a half-joking way, there's three things that the changing the duvet cover, putting sort of sloppy food into black bin liners, particularly when you don't have a bin as a skeleton to, to, you know, when it's just lying on the floor, you know, the old curry or something, or where you're trying to put it in a bin liner. I think if I had my time again, I'd invent another bag, which was a different colour on the inside and the outside. But anyway, that's a different point. But, uh, and any form of gardening, right? So, so those three things, I hate gardening. So any form of gardening, putting sloppy food into bin liners and changing the duvet cover. There's nothing in my job that I do ever that I I like less than doing those kind of ordinary household things. So I'm hearing that you literally found something that lit you up from the inside though. So you would have done it for free really because you enjoyed it so much. And I still would. I mean, there's elements of what I do now that um, I would, you know, the day-to-day running of the company stuff that I do less and less of, I, I would do less of if I wasn't getting paid for it. But but working with the, particularly making the films, you know, I'm, I'm making two or three at the moment and a few documentaries, and I would do them all for free. And I do do some for free. You know, I do I do, do some things outside of Universal. I'm currently making... I've just finished one film, actually in as well. So that one, I'm not being paid, but I did invest in it slightly. But, uh, you know, I'm helping some people do some films. Generally low budget, very low budget films, which I enjoy doing. I think that's the lesson, is find something that you do like. And it, it might sound like a cliche, but if you could see my pals, you know, from 55 to 65, desperate to get out of work, you'd, you'd understand that they just spent 30 years doing something that they didn't really like doing. And it's, uh, that's a big lesson, I think. I think probably there's not many people. I think you quite lucky there that. that your mum, by the sounds of it, allowed you to make your mistakes and be curious and try different things. So that you yeah. felt open to, you know, making mistakes and finding your way. Whereas a lot of us, I think, we feel straight away when we come out of university that we should fit into a mould of, you know, being a successful yeah. person instead of just finding what our passion is. Yeah, I mean, I think there's two things there as well. One, I certainly, it was years later, really, when I realised how great my mum and my dad, but how great they were at never putting any pressure, zero pressure, um, you know, not ever, nothing on the phone. And when I got the job in the record shop, you know, and they knew I was thrilled a bit. So I'm 23, and in those days, you know, working behind the counter in a record shop, but they, they never once, I never picked up any form of dissatisfaction. But then the other thing, which is a bit different, but, but kind of in keeping with it, is I was very lucky, the virgin culture, particularly in those days, it's probably not the same now, but the virgin culture, which was basically Richard and Nick, so Richard Branson and Nick Powell, um, and they were equal partners in those days. So Richard Richard became the, the kind of figurehead more, but Nick was as important at the time. This is up till about 80, 81, I think. And Nick died recently, but um, uh, he went on, he left 
he split with Richard in the early 80s, like very early, probably 80, uh, and went set up Palace Pictures and then went to work National Film School. So a fantastic guy. Uh, but both of them were very, very informal, but very, very serious. So I remember Nick getting really cross one day when somebody jokingly was talking about how casual we were at Virgin. And he got quite cross and said, no, we're, no, we're very, very informal, but we're not casual. You know, we're very serious. And I found people over the years, not so much now, but like 20 years ago, where people would misread my apparent demeanour, which I won't bother to describe, but other people will see as being kind of seemingly casual and laid back and, and not, not, I mean, I'm struggling with the words a bit. So they will misread it as not serious, but mainly because it's not pompous. Um, and therefore they've come to marry up a kind of pomp with a seriousness. And what, what Virgin had, and it was pretty unique in those days, but less so now, you know, coming from the mid 70s, where I joined in 76, where you could be deadly serious about what you were doing and you were you had high quality thresholds, uh, but you did it in a way that, that was informal. And that was that was groundbreaking. And because I was young-ish still, um, and because I was new, and because that suited me as a style, I never went through that process of, you know, working in a, a, a big corporate company where you learn to to behave in that way, you know, which is, you know, if you had to describe it as a as a visual image, it would be a suit and a tie. And but it doesn't necessarily have to be a suit and tie, but it's a visual image. So I never ever had to behave like one of those people in order to get on or fit in. I then I mean I, I doubled around a while after I left. I so I, I left in eighty eight. So I ran the retail company, which was great fun and I loved it. I left at the end of eighty eight, did some video stuff and then and then the people that had been running Virgin Film, Virgin Vision, the film company, wasn't really owned by Virgin anymore. They asked me to go and be general manager at that company. So I kind of went back to Virgin, but it wasn't Virgin anymore. But the people were, were old Virgin people. So so the cult, that cultural stuff, I never really had to jump out. I had a couple of years from 88 to 91. So two years where I was working in, an, in another media company. Um, and they were kind of fine too, but they were slightly more in the kind of formal mode. You know, everybody you know, drove fancy cars and, and wore suits and stuff. Whereas that wasn't the what I was used to, you know, certainly in Virgin, uh, you know, Richard was always very keen at, you know, the, any money that Richard made, he would always put back into the company. So you wouldn't see him riding around in flash cars and things. And so that was something that I, I grew to to like. And Richard never had a desk, you know, and, and Luthia would say, you know, I never have a desk. You know, I haven't had a desk for 20 years. I desperately don't want an executive chair and I, I desperately don't really want a nameplate. They put a nameplate on my office a while ago, while ago, but I don't really want those things. But like I said, so I was going back to the point I was making. Some people misread that style as being, a, hey, we're just going to, we're going to hang out, be cool and have fun. And then they can, those people can get on the wrong side. And then when if they get on the wrong side, we are deadly serious. Again, as Lithia will tell you, is that if um, if if people are gonna gonna not perform at a high quality level for whatever that reason might be, then there's gonna be questions asked. You don't duck those questions. And one of the things I I learned very early on uh, is as if you're being paid 
to be a leader or a manager, then uh, then that comes with some stuff that that isn't so nice too. Which, but if you don't do that stuff, say you've got eighty people working in your company, uh, if you don't do the stuff that is unpalatable, then um, you're letting all those other people down. And I'm passionate believer. You know, there's, one of the things I talk about quite a lot is if you look at the FTSE 100 at any one time, the companies. If you go back thirty years then I haven't done it. I haven't done this exercise in the last 10 years. But but normally there will be no companies that were around 30 years ago in the FTSE 100 that are still there now. And so the reason those companies decay, some of them split up, some of them get sold, but most of them just either fall down, they're no longer, longer big companies, or they go bust. And the reason that is, is that, is that well, one of the reasons that is, is that you get kind of sloppy behaviours and, and, and people think, you know, if you if you look back at companies like, you know, even like Debenhams and Marks and Spencers and even GE, you know, you look at those companies. If you go back 20, 30, 40 years, if somebody told you that those companies were going to be um, in trouble, you wouldn't believe it. But they become that way, and I I do strongly believe that's because the senior people surround themselves in in big desks and, comp- and executive chairs and actually don't do their job. And most of the people do their job, but they have to be led. What I'm hearing, though, is that you're creating a culture, aren't you, of openness, but you still have the expectation that everybody does their job well, but you're not leading from, like, top-down heavy. It's more that we're working together to achieve something great, and the people that are great will come with you, and the ones that are coming for an easy ride and don't want to do their job properly probably don't stay in the business. Sometimes, you know, they're happy to take the money, not do the work. So therefore, you have to then deal with that. You know, we had a crisis in that roundabout. Um, there was a time when would it be? Probably mid eighties at Virgin, when it was quite a successful company. You know, when people would want to work there, and they would come, and they would, you know, they would have the leather trousers and think that the leather trousers would be probably <laughs> enough to give them the the full. You know, they not only did they wear them, they looked good in them, and that would then, um, you know, so there was, it was. You know what the people didn't realize that you know the people that work there work incredibly hard and incredibly devoted and incredibly high quality levels. But then when you get that, then that that still attracts people that aren't going to quite get it. You know, and they that's not because they're bad people. It's just that they're not people that are suited yeah. for that. Where I learned this thing about management uh, again was you know this sort of the responsibility of management was again early on. So a manager of Marble Arch, Virgin. And when I became the manager, I, my line, my kind of attitude would be treat everybody well and people will will respond to that and treat you well. And Virgin had a thing where you had mystery shoppers would come in and, 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 and kind of analyse the transaction and how it went. Um, but sometimes they would also do, these mystery shoppers would sometimes give the cashier the correct money and walk quickly out the door. Um, so say the say the album was 39 and 6, they would have the right money, 39 and 6, and then they'd walk out the door. And if it was a quiet Monday morning when everybody was working out the back and un- unloading the stock and there's just one cashier up the front, nobody around, s- suddenly that person would have the, the 39 and 6 in their hand, they could ring it up and put it in the till or they could put it in their pocket. Uh, and, and the mystery shopper would leave and it was slightly sort of agent provocateur really 
um, and I'm not sure you know it wasn't it wasn't something that that I'd organised. I was just the manager of the shop, and so what would then happen is that the mystery shopper would watch what happened from a safe distance, and if the money wasn't rung up, the police would be called, and I, and the person would be arrested, and I would get called to go around to Seymour Place Police Station, and and it was a horrible time. So that happened. The mother, the person's mother, would come, and there'd be tears, and they were, you know, nice young 18, 90 year old cashier and and this must have happened two or three times and don't forget, I, I didn't know the mystery shopper was coming in so the first thing I would know about it because the mystery shopper was was mystery shopping me as much as the cashier so the first time I would know about it would be when I get a phone call from the either head office or the police to say you know this person's being arrested you need to go to the police station so I think it's about the third time I'm walking back, and if you know where Seymour Police, the station is, the Marblock Police Station, it's kind of at the back of Boxwood Street. And when you come back, you walk past Marks and Spencer, then you walk past McDonald's. And I walk past both those two shops feeling really despondent and really depressed. I'd just come from a tearful mother and a tearful guy who'd you know, now had a criminal record and really awful, and it was the third time it happened. This wasn't as much fun as being playing with the records and being the buyer. And as I looked at Marks and Spencer's and McDonald's, I realised that if that guy, I can't remember his name, but it was, a, it was a boy, if he'd been working in either of those two shops, he would never have done it, even exactly the same circumstance. Because in Marks and Spencer's, there would have just been a kind of an innate culture and code that you wouldn't dream of doing that thing. But at Virgin, it was all very cool and laid back and, and kind of floppy and flexible and whatever. Th- that that temptation was there. And I suddenly realised it was me that was at fault because I was being this cool, groovy manager and not providing a, a culture, you know, almost like a like different schools or different parents or whatever it might be, that I was, I was providing an ambience that would allow that to, would allow people that otherwise wouldn't. I mean, there's always going to be good guys, there's always going to be bad guys, whatever. But those ones, those people in the middle that wouldn't have dreamt of it in one culture, but I put that temptation away. So I, it was a very hard lesson, but I learned it that one walk back. Um, and then the, I went back into the shop and I told everybody, um, and, and I became really, any, any form of, any form of kind of illegal thieving, whatever it might be, uh, I'm going to call the police and I'll do it. And I scared them all. I became really tough. And, uh, and it all stopped. That's just having boundaries, isn't it? I, mean, I was a teacher for 20 years and I'm, I related so much to what you said about, you know, people could give the wrong idea of me because I was laid back and kind and, you know, I embraced yeah. everybody. Some of the parents thought that meant that I wasn't serious. But then when I got the best results, you know, that was okay. But some of the kids yeah. were the same. If you gave them too much of a too much a leeway, they needed a tighter boundary to bring out their best selves yeah, in a way. Right. Yeah. Right. So I could really relate to that. So mm. why what gives you the inspiration now, Johnny, to keep creating? What inspires you? The things we work on really. I mean, obviously I'm I'm still more of a music man than a film man, but I love the films we do. Uh, I, I mean I became a businessman. So in, through the 80s and 90s, I became a businessman as, as much as a 
creator, but we're working in an industry where we can create things. But uh, I became interested in in running uh, successful businesses and what make them work and the and the different facets of you know I like I like deal making. I mean, this thing I'm not I'm not really too much of a hippie at heart. Really, I like making deals and I like the negotiating and I like it's not really a winning thing, but I like being able to to make a company successful and so on. I'm hearing, when you say that, I'm thinking that your economics degree obviously has helped in the end, yeah. even though you fell into it and didn't really like it. I don't think so. I, <laughs> I don't think so. But, uh, no, I think, I've been, again, I learned, it, I learned a lot of that from Richard again and Nick. You know, the, uh, the Richard's style of negotiating was fantastic because... Uh, his 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 big style then was he can't really pull it off anymore was that he was a bit kind of bumbly and probably didn't know what he was doing, and therefore you'd get those people that were the that were the kind of people that thought well of themselves uh, would be immediately um, they would immediately fall into that. So he would play the the slightly bumbly person. I mean Lord King, you know the um, the British Airways guy. You know he they. Actually, no, I'm, not, I'm not going to tell that story because I'm not. Uh, it may not be. It may be anecdotal rather than. But um, you know the the fact that British Airways would allow Virgin to come into that space, uh, the, the airline space, and I'm pretty sure that British Airways loaned them the first plane and stuff. And that was because uh, why would this hippie in his polo neck sweater living on a boat be any threat? And I think that the you know the you can't do it anymore, but but a lot of Virgin's early day success was because they didn't seem to be any threat at all to the established industry. But I mean, I think the airline business was a big part of that story. I think Richard Branson's really helped people bring people into business that weren't necessarily interested in business. I remember being a newly qualified teacher and reading his book. I was obviously interested in his dyslexia and how he became successful, but I yeah. think he did, you know, bridge the gap for people that weren't necessarily interested in business but had some passion to make changes. He played that little guy, you know, the small the small entrepreneur little guy, way, way past uh, it being uh, particularly true. So he did that very, very well. You know, the people's champion of the little guy, he did that very, very well. I'm always impressed by that. I mean, I've got uh, – I don't have any bad words for, for Richard. I'm – uh, he he treated me really well, and I love working with him. And he he taught me a lot. As, but actually, I, as I keep on saying, Nick too. Nick, it's important that that Nick in those days was uh, was half a virgin. Mm. But I think you flagged a couple of things. I mean, there are many nuggets uh, from that, that conversation that I I would call out. But I guess for me, the one thing that is standing out is that at any given point you were always checking in uh, on yourself, as you said, on that walk back, that caused your reflection on your sort of leadership. And I think it's something that is reflected till today because I think obviously having worked with you, you can definitely see that sort of approachable style. But at the same time, we always feel that we need to know our, you know, excuse my French, but we need to know our shit. And I think that's one of the key things that probably has brought you to where you are today in being this reliable and highly reputed person because you know that you're always going to come back 
with that you know nugget you are going to own it and I think that's one of the key things definitely for our listeners to take away is whatever you're doing whichever thing you're involved in own it and you know fully put yourself in it but also you know lead the way and and show in it but at the same time I think both Helen and you actually are quite good in allowing people to fill in their shoes and discover who they are uh, by giving perhaps you know coming from your mum maybe but by allowing everybody to be themselves and I think one thing that is very important to flag is allowing us uh, to make mistakes which I think is one of the key learnings for everybody in business and in life you can't learn from things that you always do right you need to learn from the things that you do wrong yeah, and even the people you got rid of, I mean, they learned in a different way, didn't they? That, you know, they couldn't slack in a yeah. That's successful right. company. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That was lovely, Johnny. I think it was full of very lovely nuggets, very, I would say, inspirational moments. I think personally, you know, I'm walking away with, have no plan, but know that you will still succeed if you keep being true to yourself. And one powerful thought for me, which is, you know, the fact that you are not thinking of retiring because you never thought that you were working in a way. Yeah. So that will be my, my challenge to everybody listening to us. Are you living a life that you want to retire off? And if you are, what can you do to make it better? Because I think that sort of mindset, the one that you have, is the one that we should or aspire to have, live a life that we don't need retirement from. I don't want to put too much pressure on people because maybe there is an element of luck, but if you can achieve achieve that. My mum and dad, my dad was a fireman and my mum worked in a glove factory, you know, so so they... Um, I think my dad liked being a fireman, being a fireman actually, so maybe he, he did do it. But I'm pretty sure my mum didn't like working in the glove factory. Uh, so sometimes, you know, you, it's, a, it's a luxury, but it's one that, is, uh, that should be really high on the, on the motivation. When, when uh, my careers guy at school, you know, when you go and see the careers guy, this is probably better now, but he said I should be a quantity surveyor. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and there's a chance... I could have, if I was a different person, I would have, oh, well, let's find out what that is then. And I did my maths and, and I went to quantity surveyor school. And I, you know, it was only because obviously it was, it was kind of 60s and stuff. And so we were all slightly rebellious. And also, like I say, my parents were okay about that too. But had I not, and I'd got myself down. So the thing we'd encourage people is to, is to not be forced down a hole that, you're not happy to go down, but if you are happy to go in, I don't know. I don't want. To, I don't want to name a, a career, which I mean, it sounds like I'm therefore dissing that career. But if if you are happy to choose something which is a nine to five office job, because that's that's what you want, then that's okay too. So I don't. I, I wouldn't want to put too much pressure. But but yeah, do if you can find a job that you love. I mean, nobody. When I was when when I was at a, grand, a local grammar school. And nobody ever talked about jobs in the theatre or the cinema or the arts or music or acting. You know, I talk, you know, I see people now, obviously, who they say, how did you get into acting? Well, I went to acting school and I went to RADA. And it is a, 
I didn't know one person of all my school friends in the we have 600 boys at my school. I don't know one person who even had a conversation about whether that was an opportunity or not. You know, people were, were going to go off into sensible jobs. So I'd say um, do spend some time on trying to trying to, to figure what, what those things are that uh, that will keep you happy for, for 30, 40 years. And Johnny, what I was hearing when you were talking is this more of go with the flow. Don't pressure yourself into finding something. You sounded like you're quite happy anyway, trying those different jobs. And that's probably what led you to finding something that you loved. So not put pressure on yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it could be it could be a risky strategy. I'm not sure that... <laughs> that sensible people would recommend it but you're kind of you are kind of flying a kite and you're just you're jumping off and you're letting things happen you're releasing the fear aren't you because some so many people don't allow themselves because they're too frightened that they might not find something i I was you know most of us can dedicate a few years when we first leave university to trying new things about having to force something well i was talking to a pal the other night and he's the, he's a musician. I've got lots of musician friends, and he's he happily made a whole career. He's got a nice house, well, not a big house, but a nice house. And he's sold quite a few records. He's made ten, fifteen albums, you know, and uh, has really since he was twenty-one not done anything other than sing and play his guitar. Uh, but obviously, he doesn't have huge trappings of wealth around him, and he was kind of talking about that and bemoaning it and i said to him then look if when we if we were both 18 again and and i could do my job and work in pretty big companies doing pretty big jobs doing what i do um and given even our conversation i've still gone to work you know five six seven days a week for 40 years or whatever or you can play your guitar and write songs uh and and you're you're 18 both of us would have, would have chosen your job and what's now, here we are, you know, between 65 and 70, both of us, and we would still both choose your job. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's, and, and he would say, yeah, you're right. And she said, oh, what a great job I've had all my life. You know, so you can certainly turn things around really easily too. So, so that, I mean, the, the, the whole thing, it's a cliche, it's awful cliche, but the whole thing is to be happy. You know, I've got other friends who, who went to work in quite high-powered jobs in other things, you know, quite, quite sensible, big professions to be proud of. And by the time they turned like 45, 50, they were planning what they were going to do when they didn't have to do it anymore. And so that I think is the, is the big lesson is to, if you can, and it's not everybody can't, but if you can try and steer yourself off into the the place you want to be. Sometimes those jobs are just for a short while, aren't they? It's okay to push, you know, 20 years and then have 20 years (laughs) doing what you love. Yeah, right, the wrong answer about, is there. That's what I'm trying to say, I think. Yeah. And the difference about nowadays and, and those days is that um, nowadays people do jump whole careers, you know, a, a decade here, a decade there, which wasn't uh, something that you did in my day. Before we let you go, we've got two last questions for you. The first one is, can you sum up in one sentence, how have you made your life better? I don't like the phrase, follow your heart. Um, or follow your dream. I don't like it because it can excuse selfish behaviour and it can mean, hey, I'm being true to myself, I'm following my heart. And actually what it can often be is an excuse 
for treating other people badly. So I don't like that phrase. However, um, within that, with, with that uh, side view, I would also say that you know, I, I tended to have um, enjoyed most things that I've done. You know, ninety-five percent of what I've done, I've I've enjoyed doing. And I, I, um, you know, and there was one, there was two times when I wasn't happy doing what I was doing. And both times I said, I'm, I'm walking away. And I did walk away. So that's quite a big thing too. So, so my sentence would be, I've, 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 on the most part, stayed, stayed happy with my choices. Amazing. Thank you so much. Nice to talk to you. Thank you for, for listening. Thank you, Jenny. And we will, we'll put in the notes where where we can find you so people can find you if they want to on your website yeah i have a website so i'm more than happy that you you put that link on perfect we'll pop that in the comments and jenny thank you so much for being with us i think it's been a very inspirational talk i found myself with goosebumps in uh, quite a few times so thank you so much for sharing so so your journey has been it's been lovely yeah it'd be a great one to share with my children as well yeah. Get them to think about what they're going to do. Uh, <laughs> and to all of you uh, listening, to you. thank you very much. Thank you, Johnny. Uh, bye. And to all of you listening to us, thank you so much for joining us one more week. Please make sure to subscribe so it alerts you when a new episode comes up. And please uh, share the love, spread the word, and share this episode with anybody that you would think would benefit from it. And we shall see you next week. Thank you. <laughs>